0: Well, as we continue our series through the Gospel of John, we've been in it some time now, I thought it would be good to just kind of briefly review the Gospel account, where we are in the life of Christ and, and in, the, in this book of John. And so we'll, we'll briefly uh, look briefly at just kind of the way John has organized this Gospel record and then we'll get into our text this morning. So kind of look at the whole forest, step back and look at the whole forest before we kind of get back down and look at... The trees here in John chapter 6. John is a very organized writer and he has a good plan as he lays out his gospel. We've said this when we began and we've noted it along the way. And that's not an easy thing. I mean, writing is hard. I mean, students, you're in school, a lot of of end-of-the-year papers. And that's, for most students, that's one of the more difficult parts of school is, is writing. It was for me. It still is difficult to write, to write well anyway. I have no interest in writing books. I have nothing profound to th- say, because I don't think that many profound thoughts. Um, and, and, it, and honestly, from everything I've heard, it's just hard. It's hard to write in an interesting way, in a very clear way, in a, a, a kind of simple and clear way, and, and in a way that keeps things moving and, and easy to follow. Uh, but But... One author, I read this quote, and I've heard this before, one author sums it, pretty, sums it up well when, when he was asked if writing was difficult or not. He said this, is writing difficult? No, there's nothing to it. You just sit down at the desk with a piece of paper and a pencil and open a vein. <laughs> but, but in John's case, there, there is, there's help um, there's help. He has the best possible help. The Holy Spirit of God is there superintending his work. And so this is not just a doesn't just have human fingerprints on this. This is the this is the word of God that comes through this human writer, John. And so as we've as we're, as we're here walking through John's Gospel, just to see where we're at, but the overview of John's Gospel is there's this clear statement of purpose that we've looked at many times in John 20, 31. So he, he makes it very clear why he's writing. There, there, it begins with this short uh, prologue. It ends with a short epilogue. And in the middle, you have the, the bulk of the book, you could really say, in a sense, is kind of three books in one so you, you have these three chunks of material that make up most of the book. The first book is the book of signs, is what I would call it. And this is the first 12 chapters of John. What we're in right now, there are these seven signs. We've looked at five of them so far. And that, that's kind of the, the, the bulk of that first part of the book. These seven signs take place over a period of three years in Jesus' ministry. And you get to the second book in John, and I'm calling it the book of secrets, the Book of Secrets. We also call it the Upper Room Discourse. And this is John 13 to 17. And so it's this, it's this, this um, Jesus talking to his disciples. And when I say secrets, I don't mean something that's mysterious and, and we, we, don't, we can't possibly understand. But it's something his truth that Jesus hadn't yet told his disciples. And he's making clear to them and now is, of course, clear to us. He's preparing them for life after he's gone. Preparing them for his sufferings and for his imminent departure. So he, so he has this time with the disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem over a period of about three hours. That's chapters 13 to 17. And Jesus there, this is what some have called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. As Jesus is sharing his most intimate thoughts and, and, and prayer on the night before his death. And so we just get this, I think it's one of the most beautiful places to see uh, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, how, how they, they, they work together, relate to one another. And so this is, this is John 13 to 17, the book of secrets. And then you have the book of sufferings in chapters 18 to 20. And this is where you get to Jesus' passion, His, his, his arrest and death and crucifixion, resurrection. And that takes place in Jerusalem over a period of roughly three days. So those are kind of the three spot three three books in John. And this morning we're helicoptering kind of back into the middle of a scene right after Jesus fed the multitudes, the 5,000 plus plus people. And and so we're here in John 6. And we're going to pick it up in John 6 chapter 6 verse 22. So look there with me John 6 verse 22. We're just going to kind of walk through the text this morning and see this narrative and 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 the difficulty is we're basically kind of breaking off in mid thought. And there's so much here. It's, I didn't want to just try to take it all, the, kind of the whole of chapter 6 together, but realize this is one discourse of Jesus, and we'll pick up the rest next week. But John 6, verse 22, "...on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone." All right, you know what's going on here, and this is one of the things I love about uh john's gospel is he he has this attention to these little details that I think just just open up and give just full color and vivid color to to this gospel account but here's here's what happened so it was on in a morning, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee made their way across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And remember, Jesus went away to, to rest, to teach His disciples, to pray. And as soon as they got there, they, Jesus sits around with His disciples, but then these crowds start coming to them. And they come, and they're looking for Him to heal Him. And so there's, they spend all day healing these multitudes of people, and the crowds just continue to build. So there are thousands of people gathered in this hillside on the eastern side of Galilee. And, this, and then Jesus feeds these multitudes miraculously. And, and so, then it's all over at the end of the day, and the disciples get back in the boat, and they head back to Capernaum, but Jesus doesn't get in the boat. That's basically what we're seeing there in verse 22. And the crowds notice this. They think, wait, the disciples got in the boat, but where in the world is Jesus? Where is he? Where is he? He's not in the boat. So, so the disciples push away, they row to Capernaum, and the crowd is left thinking, well, what about Jesus. Where is he? What, what what happened? Did they did they forget him? They're gonna, they're gonna turn around in a little bit and come back, and Jesus is gonna say, "You forgot me! Come get me!" That so so this is the kind of the quandary that these these crowds that have, again have seen the miracles of Christ and they're trying to put this together. They've been watching, sitting by the shore. And they know that Jesus didn't leave in a boat. And so verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So they come near where this miracle had happened, where these crowds are gathered. So verse 24, so when the crowds saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum to seek, seeking Jesus. So the crowds kind of hire the next little water taxis that cruise along by the shore and they get in and they make their way across the Sea of Galilee to see if Jesus actually made it to the other side. I don't know what happened. And so when they get over to Capernaum, look at what happens. Verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And this is a question you and I would have asked. What, what happened? How, 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 Jesus, what's, what's the deal? We, we know you weren't in the boat. We know there was only one boat. There were no other boats that came during the night. So how did you get from that side of the lake to this side of the lake? Tell us what happened and when it happened because we're really confused. And and what's great about the gospel of John is that John has already let us he's already let the reader in on a little secret. We know what happened. We know how he got across the lake. How did he do it? He walked on water. That's right. We saw this you see in verse 16 and following but again in the in the sequence the, these people have no clue about that. The miracle of Jesus walking on the water was only seen by the disciples. And it was, it was really part of his training of the twelve. He's showing them more of his identity, his divine identity uh, to the twelve in preparation for their, for their ministry and for their lives. And, and so, but, but Jesus gets to Capernaum, and he doesn't say, Hey, everyone, guess what I did? I just walked across the sea, the stormy sea, and, and, and I bet you can't do that. You want me to show you? You want me to show you? And so, you know, hop out on the water again. He doesn't do any of that. And, and, and so in terms, of, in terms of how he uses this sign for the crowd, it's not to show and to prove that he's God. That, they don't have a clue that that happened, that event happened. We, the reader, know that they didn't know. And, and Instead, the, the, the function of this sign for the masses is really to start a conversation, and that's what happens. He, he knows the people will be confused by the sequence of events and by the timing. And so they find Jesus. They ask him these questions. And, and Jesus uses these, this opportunity of their questioning to share the most important thing about himself. And it's going to be this, that he alone gives eternal life. It's just, again, all a setup. And so the crowd asks, how would you get, get here? They want an answer. And so Jesus gives them one, sort of. Verse 26, Jesus answered them. So they ask a question. When did you get here? Jesus answered their question. Truly, truly, I say to you. When you see that, that's just code. Listen up. Get what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Now, is this classic Jesus or what? I mean, we've seen this in... John, and we've we've seen it in other gospel accounts that Jesus answers them without really answering them. So they ask a question; they're looking for information. Jesus just kind of bypasses their question altogether and says what he what he wants to say. When did you get over here? You're not seeking me. You're not seeking me because you saw signs. You're seeking me because you want full bellies because you're hungry. You only want something to eat. To to meet your immediate physical needs, you only want some temporal satisfaction of your cravings. That's the only reason you're looking for me. That's not what I'm about. And so they're not looking for Jesus because they saw the miraculous healings. They saw the sign of Him feeding these masses miraculously. And and, and so that, that He must be the Son of God. Remember, this is why John has recorded these signs, so that we might believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God. But this is not why they're looking for Jesus, because we want to worship you, we want to believe you, we want to follow you, Jesus. No, they're, they're looking for him because they have the munchies, and, and they know that Jesus gives bread. And so they completely miss what the sign signifies, is pointing to, and they're s- just stuck on physical food. And Jesus, this isn't the first time Jesus has had to deal with people like you and me, who we just get stuck in this kind of world of the physical the stuff we can see and touch and feel and, and the temporal things. And we've seen this throughout the gospel already. We saw it with Nicodemus. You must be born again. So Nicodemus is asking the question, well, how is it possible to enter back into my mother's womb to be born again? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not that. It's, it's, it's a, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. You had the the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And and so, Jesus, you you don't have a bucket. How are you going to draw water without a bucket? Jesus says, no, 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 no. Talking about living water that will spring up inside of you to eternal life. And so here, these, these Galileans are saying, hey, how did you physically get from there to here? And by the way, give us some bread again, because we're hungry, physical bread. Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I'm interested in. That's not what I'm interested in. I I didn't come from heaven to earth simply to perform miracles. I didn't come from heaven to earth to to just provide physical nourishment. I came from heaven to earth to meet the deepest need of man. And so he says, verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seals. Don't don't work for food that perishes. That's not saying, like, we think non-perishable food. That don't, but do work for non-perishables. You know, work for canned peas. Uh, now, because the reality, there is no such thing as non-perishable food. You're not going to want to eat a 2,000-year-old can of peas, I can assure you. Um, it, it, but He's saying, don't... Don't work for stuff that it satisfies you, your temporary cravings, but it doesn't last. Don't don't labor after it. Don't pursue that. And and this this is this is anything that that never satisfies. It doesn't doesn't satisfy for long. And so it, it, he's talking about he uses food, but it could be anything: money, entertainment, sexual gratification work, whatever success, anything, that they, they all have this very limited shelf life. We, we find enjoyment, we find satisfaction, we, we seem to find some meaning attached to some of those things that we, we pursue and run after and work for, but in the end, they always leave us wanting. We're empty. It doesn't last. Instead, work for the food that endures to eternal life. And it's the son of Man who gives this food. And we're going to see Christ is the food. It's the Son giving Himself. Jesus is eternal. And, and He can sustain us and satisfy us forever. So work, work for that food. And, and, it, and this, this Son of Man, we know that He can give it to us because He has the right credentials. The Father has set His seal upon Him. Into verse 27. He has the Father's stamp of approval. <coughs> so pursue Him. Pursue Christ. That which gives eternal, abundant, everlasting life. What are what are you working for? What are, what are your passions? What are your pursuits, brothers and sisters? Is Christ and your pursuit of Him kind of one box among many that you feel like you have to check off so you can feel good and say, "Well, I, I I've done my duty for Jesus this week," or 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 is is that box just this all-encompassing box and? And, and Christ, everything in your life falls squarely and clearly underneath Christ in your pursuit of him, your marriage, your job, your ministry in the church your 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 expectations about your future everything everything is filtered through that through that grid of your of your pursuit of Christ. is that true because that is the only thing that will endure through eternal life. I mean if Christ were to walk through the back door today and 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 look at Justin Culbertson in the eye and say to me I-, I want I want to know your single passion what are you what are you what are you pursuing what are you going after most in life will I be able, will I be able to say I am pursuing you Christ why can I say that with sincerity because if I can Jesus will say to me Any, anything else why are you pursuing things that will that will just decompose will perish things that have no eternal value things you what you should pursue is me Sue me. How well am I conveying this to my family, to my children, to to, to my friends? How how well are you and brothers and sisters conveying this to one another? What is your greatest passion and pursuit? And what Jesus is saying, this is just a mantra that we need to just drill into our heads: eternal over temporal. Just drill that into your brain and into your heart. Eternal always trumps temporal. And and God is focused on what does not perish. And so should we. We'll see this again throughout John. So Jesus is saying, don't work for food that perishes. Just, ah, there's all kinds of things we crave and we look for, for satisfaction and to sustain us. But none of it lasts. Pursue me. And then in verse 28, we see the response of the crowd. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Notice what happens here. These Galileans, they, 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 they only focus in on one word that Jesus says. They just hone in on this one word, and it's work, labor. They, they completely miss the big picture of what Jesus is saying. And so they, they ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And notice that they ask about works, plural, the works of God. Give us a checklist, Jesus. Tell us what the 15 or 20 or 200 or 1,000 things we have to do to, to earn, to start, to, so we can start doing them and somehow earn the food that endures to eternal life. What are the works that we're supposed to do, Jesus? What does Jesus say in response, verse 29? This is the work of God. Singular. This is, this is the only thing that is necessary. This one singular thing is all God is asking of you, requiring of you. And what is it? That you may believe in Him whom he has sent. He's tying this verse, this truth, it's tied back right into the very purpose for which he's writing. I've written these things so that you may believe Christ in Christ, the Son of God. Isn't, isn't that good? I mean, how he, he's tying it in. So he takes this incredible story, this feeding of the 5,000, this encounter with these, these Galileans, and he brings it right back to why he's writing the book. The one thing God wants from us is to believe. It's faith. Faith. Faith alone. And they pushed back a little though. Verse 30. So they said to him, And what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Okay, so if we're supposed to believe and that's it, what are you going to do to, to show us that we might believe in you? Now sure, okay, yeah, we see we saw the the healings all day long, healing people that are crippled from birth, and blind people seeing, and lame people walking and, and deaf people hearing, yeah, 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 whatever, that's kind of routine. I and mean, yeah, we saw you feed twenty thousand people with a little boy sack lunch by just multiplying this food. Whatever, yawn. We want to see a sign, and if we could see a sign, then maybe we believe in you, Jesus. They want they want them to go one better. Verse thirty one. They go on, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That was a sign. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're trying to, kind of trying to pull rank on Jesus here. <laughs> they, they, they've watched him do these incredible miracles and feed thousands of people. But now they say, okay, all right, we hear what you're saying. But remember, remember back Exodus 16, when manna was just falling from heaven. Day after day. And Moses was causing this to happen again. Every day it just kept coming. And it wasn't just some isolated miracle Jesus. It was coming every single day. So actually, Moses seems to be greater than you. So, so can you do a sign that shows you're greater than Moses? I think that's the, that's the idea here. And then Jesus basically just kind of lays a smack down on him here. <laughs> that's my interpretation of this. They, they, they push back and he just comes back and says, Verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, you better listen to this. It was not Moses who gave bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now notice the tense of those verbs. You see that? Verse 32. It was not Moses who gave past tense you bread from heaven it was it is my father who gives present tense we expect him to say it wasn't moses who gave manna from heaven it was my father who gave you manna from heaven he didn't say that Says the father gives bread from heaven true bread what is jesus saying he's saying what moses moses did was insignificant compared to the bread that is me That manna was inferior to what the Father is giving you today. In fact, that was that was just a foreshadow. That was a that was a a foreshadow of what is fulfilled in my coming. They were trying to say that the manna was better because it came every single day, and Jesus is saying, "You only need me once. Feast on me once, and you'll be satisfied forever." That, That that manna stuff was about me. That was foreshadowing me, and that I was to come manna from heaven was temporal, but the eternal bread is here. It's here now. Don't miss it. The manna is a, a shadow of what the substance is. That's Jesus Christ himself. But they they still don't get it. We're slow to figure these things out too. Verse 34. They said to him, okay, sir. It's not just just kind of a respectful, casual greeting though. Sir, give us this bread always. Okay. All right. I guess I guess we'd like to eat that. Yeah okay, we want to get what we want. You call it what you want, but give us give us the bread that we're looking for, and we'll eat it. Give us it always. Just keep giving us bread, and then Jesus really lays it out for them. Verse thirty-five: Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life." He makes it very clear to them. This is the first of these "I am" statements that we find in the Gospel of John. "I am the bread of life." We talked about this a little bit last week. The kind of looked at the background of some of these "I am"s, but the roots of these statements that we're going to begin to see come out in the Gospel of John. Uh, some have said the, sign, the seven signs of, in John are kind of the backbone of the book. The seven I am statements are really where John works out his theology through, through this, his Gospel account. So, but the roots of these I am statements, they go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3, Moses is wandering around in the wilderness trying to, trying to kind of find some meaning in his life. 80 years old, and, and he doesn't really have any. And so when he comes to the edge of Mount Sinai, he sees this strange, strange sight. He looks off, and there's this small tree or this bush that's on fire. but It's not being consumed. I mean, that's seeing a bush on fire not that strange. But it's not being consumed. The flames aren't consuming it. So he kind of takes a detour. He goes over to this bush. And as he approaches the bush that's burning, God speaks to him. Speaks from the bush and he commissions him to go and back to Egypt to bring Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And so Moses isn't sure that anyone's really going to take him seriously as a deliverer. He had actually tried this 40 years earlier and it didn't really work out. And, and so now he's being sent back to do that work. So he's concerned about how he's going to be received by the Israelites. And, and so he asks God to declare his name for Moses for the sake of his mission. And so Exodus 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am the Lord. I'm the self-existent one. Everything that has being exists because of me. He's the one who is the same yesterday, today, forever. I am. I just am. Of course, we know that the one speaking to Moses out of the burning bush was none other than the second person of the triune God. It's the one who would come, born of a virgin, taking on flesh and bearing the name Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to Moses out of this bush. He's pointing, and so here in John 6, Jesus is pointing back to that event at Mount Sinai and he's, so they can identify him correctly. I, I am. He's going to make this clear in John eight that that was his voice in Sinai, but but Jesus is asserting his divinity here. I am ego a me in the Greek. I myself am. I am here. The bread of life. The bread of life. Now bread was central to life for first century Galileans. Um, It's hard for us to appreciate what this would have what bread meant to these people because we have bread, and bread's just kind of an optional. I mean, even people, you get a, I don't understand this, but people get a burger, and then they wrap it in lettuce instead of bread. I don't get that at all, but bread's one of those things, do we want to have bread with dinner tonight, or do we just want to have meat and vegetables, you know, it's just kind of, eh, whatever, just it's a nice, What the answer to that is always, yes, let's have bread, by the way. Um, if you anybody ever asks if you want cheese on anything, you just say yes, and it doesn't really matter what it is. Um, But, but bread is, is optional. And, but for first century Galileans, bread was life. It was simply a matter of just sustenance. They they don't live without bread. And that they would get, at best, maybe one small piece of meat a week. But, but they lived on bread. Every meal centered around bread. It was central to their existence. And much of the world today is in the same situation. There's no bread. They, they die no grains, but thing to make bread. And they make all kinds of different breads. Not like we think bread, but just, just to keep you alive. That's what bread was for. And it can. It has stuff to just keep you alive. And so Jesus comes to them and says, Let me, let me be crystal clear what I'm saying to you. I'm saying that you need to work for this food that endures to eternal life. And this is bread not, it's the bread that's better than the man that came from, from heaven for, for the Israelites. This is bread that the Father sent in this earth. He says, I am Bread of life. I am absolutely central to your existence. You, you need me to, to, to live the next day. You need me. I mean, you can pursue all kinds of other things. You can chase this and crave this and pursue that and run after that and work for this. But that's all for naught if you're not feeding on me. I'm the, I'm the bread of life. There's nothing else. And verse, into verse 35, I'm the bread of life and whoever comes to me, to me, Shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our deepest need in life is not met by something. It's not met by a girlfriend or a boyfriend or or a new job or a new or or, or a new house or a bigger a fancier car or, or a geographic job change or some possession. It's not met by anything. Our greatest need is met by someone. It's a person. It's not something we can buy. It's not something we can educate ourselves to. It's not something that we can just pursue with our own effort or merit. It's it's someone we know. It's a person we know. Jesus, it's me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let me be clear with what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying here. He's not saying that, that we will or should stop pursuing, stop hungering and thirsting for Jesus. It's like we've got to take our medicine once, and then we just kind of gulp it down, and then, oh, good, never have to do that again. I can kind of go on my life. I, I believed in Jesus, and then we go on. That's not what he's saying. I mean, one of the, the, the main purposes of our study of John, if you remember when we began this, whenever it was, um, I, I said one of the, the things that I continue to pray for you is is and for myself is that we would have this insatiable hunger and this unquenchable thirst for Jesus Christ. That's what we want. We want more of Him. Know Him more. Just pursue Him. Hunger for Him. Be satisfied in Him. And so He's not saying we should stop hungering for Him if, if we've believed in Him. He's saying that the emptiness, that that core inside of us that longs for something, it will be satisfied in Him. And it will be filled with Jesus. You, I was thinking of how to Compare this, you compare this, uh, I was comparing it to marriage. It's probably not a perfect comparison, but th- that analogy is made elsewhere in Scripture. And so when Brooke and I came to be married, I said to her and she said to me something along these lines. I am forsaking all others for you, you alone. I, I am in this for the rest of my life till death do us part. So, so we joined and, and, and that, that emptiness was filled and the marriage is consummated forever. It's unbreakable. But that doesn't mean that I stop pursuing Brooke. That doesn't mean she stops pursuing me. I, I, I have a growing passion for her hunger and thirst to, to meet her needs. And, 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 I, and, and I want to, to know her even more. And I learn new things all the time about her. And so it's some, some marriages, and again, I'm not trying to hold up like this is our marriage. Every day is, you know, sweeter than the day before in the, in the sense of some. It's just nothing but bliss and and we never have troubles, but but there, but uh, you know the, there are those marriages. They begin with those vows till death do us part, and then it's like that's the end. And two years in, they're staring at each other over a plate of mashed potatoes, and there's nothing to talk about. And they've they've, they've stopped pursuing each other. At least one has, and they don't hunger and thirst for their spouse anymore. This 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 can happen with Jesus. This is why this is one of again why I'm praying this for our flock is that maybe you've said Jesus I believe you I, I believe in you save me and He did He gave you life He joined Himself to you and you're joined to Christ and that's unbreakable you're married to Christ and that bond is eternal and can never be broken nothing can separate you from the love of Christ but ever since you you kind of sitting around you really don't know what to talk to Jesus about just, just kind of just kind of existing. Being under the same roof, you've, you've stop pursuing Him. You don't hunger and thirst for Him anymore. If that's you, I just just beg the Lord to start here and confess that to, to God. And this is where I am, Lord. Revive my heart, Lord. Revive me. I want to know You. I want to thirst for You. I want to be satisfied and, and sustained by You and You alone. Just to, to ask the Lord to help you believe more deeply than ever before. Have this, again, this insatiable hunger, this unquenchable thirst for Christ. Start there. Get around people that, that have it. So Jesus says we can eat of Him, never be hungry again, always be satisfied in Him, always be filled. Then He goes on, verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet do not believe. Those who have heard and seen Jesus, but have yet to believe in Him. And there may be those here today, you've, you've been here, you've come to church for years perhaps, and, and you're, you're here and you've heard the Gospel many times, but you have yet to really put your trust in Christ. And you have people in your life, you you're praying for them. So they know the truth. They've heard it, can rehearse it. they they memorized the verses, perhaps, but they've not personally trusted in Christ. But, but we don't pray for them without hope. For we know, verse 37, that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. My sheep will hear my voice. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. They must come also. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. No one is going to slip through the Father's hands. He's he's not going to miss anyone. And he goes on, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a beautiful and powerful statement of the eternal security of the believer. Nobody, nothing can take you from his hand. No, he's saying this. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. So we, we have this assurance that nothing can ever, again, take us from the hand of the Father For those that have tasted of the bread of life, believed in Him. Then finally, verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So eating this bread of life provides us with this abundant, everlasting, satisfying life today. He has eternal life, present possession. The Father gives you the bread that satisfies today. And we all who here have tasted of Christ, we, we know that He is good. So we have that. We never hunger again. We'll always be filled. Our deepest needs will always be met. And, so, and this is the wonderful thing. No matter what your circumstances are in life. We can find contentment and joy in Christ and the abundant life that he gives to those who trust him. I mean, you, you can travel to some of the most difficult places in the world, some of the poorest nations of the world, and you find believers, and there's this radiant joy. They have nothing, but they have Christ, and they're satisfied. They have eternal life, and... That's it. That's all they need. And we we can get so cluttered. We get so distracted by all the stuff and the clutter in our lives. And so we we can miss out on that. Or you you see believers that go through difficult sufferings, whether it's persecution, persecuted brothers and sisters around this world, or or sickness, disease, or death, loss, whatever it is, abandonment, whatever it is. And, And yet they do so with this confidence in Christ and this contentment in Him. They have eternal life. No matter what happens, they have Christ. But there's also this eternal promise that we we will be raised when you when you die and your body is in the grave, it won't stay there it will be it will be raised up, it will be brought together with your soul and, and 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 the two will be will come together to form this glorified body that will last forever and you will reign with Christ for eternity. This is hope, no more pain, no more tears, no more sin no more sin and that's what the bread of life does. I was thinking about this last night, and I don't even know why I just, I started. Well, it started because I was, I was thinking about my mom, and and and, 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 I, and here Mother's Day is coming up, and and it kind of got me thinking of her and, and her her death. She died uh, five and a half years ago now, and and it kind of led me down a road. I've started thinking theology of cemeteries, graveyards. I know that's a morbid thought to have on Saturday night, but I I spoke at a men's retreat this weekend. I was tired, so maybe that's what it was. Sleep deprivation will do weird things to you, but. But we tend to think of cemeteries as sad places, and I mean, they are. There's sorrow, there's loss that's associated with that place, and, and that's certainly true. And we have one right next to us here, and I know that some of you have family members. I know of at least one child and at least one mother who's buried there. And, and I, I mean, that would not be a bad way to spend a few minutes today to walk over there and walk through there, and just in light of what we're looking at today. But my, my mom is buried in a cemetery in Miami, Oklahoma. It's spelled like Miami, but it's not Miami. It's Miami. Miami Indians, Miami University in Ohio, they pronounce it wrong on TV all the time, but um, but my, my dad no longer has a house in Oklahoma, and so we don't really have many reasons, we have some family, but we don't really have a place to stay, to go up there, so I, so it, it, I to be honest, it saddens me to think that I, I don't know uh, when I'll be back up there, and we'll be able to go to the grave of my mother, I mean, there's no, there's no plans, and no expectation of doing that anytime soon, and you may be thinking, but Justin... Your mom's not there. Your mom's, your mom's with Christ. That's just, just where her body was laid, but she, she's with Jesus. And you're right. That's absolutely true, and, and I have to remember that. But the, in the back of the, my mind, I'm, I also have this thought. It, it's okay to have some sense of longing for, for that grave site. Why? Because God's not done with that grave. <laughs> my mom will be raised again. And that little cemetery in Miami, Oklahoma, will become this incredible, glorious resu- place of resurrection. And because my mom is in Christ, the grave will no longer hold her body, and that grave will give up her body, and she'll be united with Christ, so that her with with her soul, so that she can reign with Christ forever. And so Paul says, if if, if God has been raised from the dead, He will raise us. First Corinthians fifteen. That is a that is a cast iron promise of God, eternal life, and so there 's something in, incredibly significant about that little plot where my mom has been buried for five and a half years now she 's coming out of the ground, and how do I know that? because Jesus is the bread of life and and all those who believe in him will be raised on the last day do you do you, you have that assurance? do you want to be raised again on the last day? you want to live? forever with the lord do you, do you do you want abundant life now the eternal life that we have now present possession it all comes down to this have you have you eaten of the bread of life his name is jesus and today he's calling you to believe in him for some of you that means believing for the first time you've never trusted in christ and and so you need to put your faith in him for the first time and be born again to this living hope Brothers of you, for those that already know Christ and already have have tasted of this bread, we we go on believing more deeply in Him, growing in faith. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That is an open invitation. It is a true gift. There are no strings attached. It's not that you have to clean up your life. I mean, this is how the the Jews and the Jewish system kind of, what they kind of did with this this truth of Christ, they they because it, it ran completely against the grain of their religious system, the way they thought. They, they, it was all about merit for them. It was about doing enough works of God to get on God's good side. But their need was deeper than they ever imagined. They, they thought that they could somehow do that, and it was impossible. And 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 the free offer of the gospel trips us up as well. Surely I, I've got to do something. Something to to in addition to believing to be saved. Surely I have to clean up my act first. Surely surely I've got to gotta kind of get my life in order. And then Jesus will take me. It's not it. No. Just believe. Believe. Come to Jesus with empty hands. I, I got nothing, Lord. There's an old hymn, there's nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. That's how we come to Christ. Let's pray. I pray that if there's anyone here who has not come to Christ with empty hands and is not trusted in Jesus, again, they may have heard, they may have seen, they, they may know this message and they've heard this a thousand times and yet they've not put their trust in Christ. I pray they would do so today and we could rejoice with them. In the new life, the abundant life and the, uh, and the assurance that they will one day be raised up to eternal life. And for the rest of us, Lord, that for all of us, God, may we believe Jesus more deeply, that we hunger and thirst for him more and more, to know him more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.